Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. One of the things that is that everyone experiences because it is just reality is something that's called entropy. And it is the reason why, let's say those of you who own homes or or live or rent a house or an apartment, it is the reason why that if you just leave it it does not become less cluttered or it doesn't become more clean or more tidy. It becomes far more disordered the longer you leave it because the idea is that uh, basically entropy in short is a measure of the disorder of the universe that applies to everything. That things left alone do not get better, except I guess maybe wine but I don't like alcohol, so I've missed out on the one thing that entropy doesn't affect. But most things in the world become more disordered. They don't become better. And, and it's interesting because the Greek root of that word is it has the idea of a turning towards transformation. Isn't that interesting? That, that this idea is something that is transforming, but in a bad way. <laughs> Which is interesting, and I think this is what's super interesting about the power of the gospel, is that Jesus transforms us, but he transforms us in a way that we become better. But even in that, we have to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit and constantly pursuing Jesus so that we become more like Jesus. It's not something we can just leave. We, we meet Jesus We get salvation, we get forgiven our sins, and then we just leave that, and then without any kind of effort or or surrender or submission on our part, things all of a sudden just get better. And this is not only true for our lives, but it was true in the early church. It's true in our church. It's because the fact that the church is a group of redeemed sinners, which means even the body of Christ pre-Jesus' return is subject to the same issues. This morning, what we see in our passage are are two things, two tensions, internal tension and external tension that desires to take the church to a place of greater disorder and dysfunction and disunity. And we see this morning a warning and we see how God calls his people to work through that situation. And, and, so, and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 6, and, and we're going to get through verse 15, but I want to read just the first part of it right now. And so we need to remember the context of where we are. We are at a point where we just, in the end of chapter 5, what happened in the life of the church is that the apostles were all arrested, and they were brutally beaten, almost to the point of death. And they walk out of that beating, it says, rejoicing that they were found worthy of the name of Jesus. And then they go back out and they continue to proclaim Jesus, who he is, and what God is doing in the world. And so now we see that happening. And I would think that, you know, they're doing what God wants them to do. And oftentimes we think, well, maybe things will go better. Maybe things will calm down. 
things don't calm down. It's just now we see from that point, now we see some internal and external tension within the church. In verse one of chapter six, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. These are, are those in the church. These are Hellenist Jewish Christians and Hebrew Jewish Christians. And I'll just maybe pause there for a second. And, and, and basically, so that we understand, uh, these are all Jewish Jesus followers in the church that this complaint rose up. And so what you had is, is those who were more ethnically and traditionally Hebrew tradition in, the church, in, in Judaism, and then those who were more Hellenistic in, in their expression. And what that means is that, that the Hellenistic is just simply Greek, and because of the diaspora, that, that the, the Jews were separated and driven all over the, the known world at that time, those who grew up outside of Israel or outside of Jerusalem, they didn't have the same the same anchors, the same benefits that you had in, in, in Jerusalem. So those who grew up in Jerusalem, they spoke Hebrew. That was their preference of speaking. Those who grew up outside of that, their preference because of the cultures that they grew up in, they preferred Greek. And, and, so, and so there was this, this distinction, this, this separation, this difference between these two groups of people. And so really what it turns out to is the Hellenist had more Greek influence and the Hebrews had very little Greek influence. And so there's tension between those two groups of people in Judaism, but then also that tension translated into the church when those Jews became Jesus followers. And so a complaint, it says, rose up between the Hellenists against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows in the church were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so here's another thing that, that we need to kind of understand is that so that the, the Hellenist widows who were in the church, they were being passed over. They weren't being remembered. They weren't being identified um, during that time that they were distributing the things that were, were basic needs, food and clothing, and, 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 and they, were, they were vulnerable and they were neglected, probably not intentionally or maliciously, but they were just forgotten about in favor of the Hebrew widows. Now, now, the thing that we have to understand about this is, is that the widows in the New Testament context, those who were widows, were the most vulnerable category of people. Now, that's not necessarily true today. Widowed women can be vulnerable, but, but today we have, I mean, if, if there's a couple and, and they've, they've been careful and they've... Uh, lived with some intention, and sometimes things go well. Um, and if her husband passes away, oftentimes there's an estate there, and, and they've prepared for whether retirement or what happens after death. And, and today's widows are not the same degree of vulnerability as they were in the New Testament. Because if you were widowed, you had nothing. You didn't have that nest egg. You didn't have that... That, that estate and all of those kinds of things. And so, and so they were very, very, very vulnerable, the most vulnerable of the population. Now that not necessarily being that today, I think one of the things we need to do as we read this text and as we apply it 
to our lives and how God wants us to behave and how God wants us to live, we need to ask ourselves a question. Who are the most vulnerable people in our culture, in our society? Because there's, there's an easy thing that we can do is we can just kind of transfer what we read here into today and say, hey, as long as the church is caring for widows, we're good. And that's important to care for those who have been widowed and are struggling. But it's not a one for one. And so the question is, who are the most vulnerable categories of people today in society? Now, if I were to ask that question, there'd be a lot of, probably a lot of answers. And as I was thinking through, who would people identify as potentially the most vulnerable people in our culture? Perhaps the homeless, maybe being the most vulnerable in our culture. Maybe immigrants, both those documented and and undocumented. Someone may say that's the most vulnerable of our population. Others, may say that the unborn is the most vulnerable people in in our culture and our population. Others would say people of color are the most vulnerable today. And some would say those who are in the LGBTQ community are the most vulnerable. Now I say that because I want us to catch something really important. Jesus calls his church to care for the vulnerable. Regardless how different they are for me or you, we are called to care for those who are vulnerable. And we have to recognize that there may be some tension in caring for those who are vulnerable and even identifying who is vulnerable. See, the New Testament writers are clear that our purest expression of the life and message of Jesus is to care for those who are most vulnerable. And and so we see in the early church what was happening was those who were the Hellenistic Jewish believing widows were not recognized, were, were being missed in favor of the Hebrew Jewish Christian widows. And what's interesting about that, if you look at the leadership in Acts at this point, it's the apostles, right? The apostles were all Hebraic. They weren't Hellenists, they were Hebraic. So the leadership was bent toward probably the Hebrew widows. And again, not maliciously, just by nature. There's a reality that human nature is that we tend to see and look out for those who are like us, right? That's just normal. That is 100% part of being human. We tend to look out for those. I mean, if you see someone who is similar to you and they're in trouble, we are more apt to help that person than a person who is completely different, has different values, looks different, and acts differently than we do. We are less likely to help them in a moment, both of those people being strangers. And, And so in the church, in the early church, what we see, what we see in Acts 6 is that there is, and don't freak out that I use this word. I know it's a trigger word, but I'm gonna use it anyway. There's a systemic problem in the church that is a result of a sin problem in human beings, okay? A a systems problem in the church. 
It's clear that their system isn't working in caring for all the widows that are a part of their congregation in Jerusalem. That's clear according to the text. And it's a, I would say it's a system problem because um, is it prejudice against the Hellenistic widows? Maybe some people are thinking that, well, Hebraic, Hebraic widows are more pure. They speak more Hebrew and, you know, there's some, there's, there's some cultural creep in those who speak Greek anyway. But I don't think it was a malicious prejudice thing. I, th- I think their system probably wasn't great as the church was growing and there was problems. Was it administrative oversight? Probably. But there's also a reality that there, it was definitely complicated by distrust and tension that already existed. And th- doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> that sounds like our world that we live in, doesn't it? That all of those things, and, and we have all kinds of issues because we only see what we see. We're not aware of everyone's plight. We're not, we're not aware of all of the needs that exist in the world around us. What we know is that there was a real problem that true followers of Jesus will care about and not dismiss or explain away. And I think that, again, that comes back to this thing as are we priestly or are we political? Because the priesthood is called to care for those who are vulnerable. A politician cares for those who can benefit himself. And so as a church, again, are we a priesthood or are we politicians? And what we see in the early church, that they were definitely leaning into their priestliness. It didn't really matter what what benefited them because we see people giving and selling what they have, what they own for the benefit of others. And, and so, and so we, we move on in, in, the, in the text and it says, it says, and the 12, the apostles summoned the full, member, the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, I wanna make sure we understand this in the proper context it almost sounds like for a second, at least in our vernacular, that when they say, it is not for us to serve tables. Almost sounds like they're saying, you know what, caring for these vulnerable people is way less important and beneath us than preaching the gospel. Because, you know, preaching up front is way more important than serving needy people. That's not what they're saying at all. We, we, we can't, that's not what they're saying. That You see, Number one, care for the needy is not secondary or less important than preaching the word of God. Because it actually is preaching the word of God. It's living the word of God. And really what the, what the apostles are saying is they're saying, we need to recognize the specific calling that God has on us as individuals so that we can complete the mission that Jesus gave us. Because you see, every person who is in Christ Jesus functions under the umbrella of being a witness for Jesus Christ. We are all called to witness. We are called to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ commanded. And so every single person who knows Jesus as their savior is called to witness the person of Jesus Christ. Let people know who Jesus is, what he did, what God is doing. But within that, there's a primary calling on our lives. 
And the, the apostles are recognizing that, that there's a, a primary calling on their life in the season, and there's also gonna be a primary calling in others within the community of believers on their lives in the season. One of the things that I found super helpful as of late is looking at the spiritual gifts that Paul lists in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians. And these are three different lists of gifts, and I think it's really significant because in Romans, there's, there's some, get into the study of this, and even to the point where in Romans it says that God gives these gifts that are skills. In Corinthians it says that the Spirit gives these gifts that are manifestations. And in Ephesians it says Jesus gives these gifts which are motivations and they are like wired into our DNA. If you go down that road, it's really fascinating. And in Ephesians, one of the things is that it says in Ephesians that Jesus has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or pastors, and teachers. There's these five gifts, people gifts, that it says that Jesus gives to his, those who follow him. And, and so really, for me, one of the things that I've found about myself is I very much have, I'm very bent toward a prophetic gift. And so that under the umbrella of being a witness for Jesus Christ, proclaiming Jesus, that what God calls me to do will utilize that prophetic gift. And, 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 so, and so really, one of the things that a few of us have been asking and in, in our kind of fleshing out the question in our lives is what has God specifically prepared for me or uh, what has God specifically prepared me for and focused me on for this immediate season in front of me? What is that calling that he has for me? It's to make disciples, all of us, but what is it specifically that he needs me to do right now? And that's what God, that's what the apostles were saying they were saying that both tasks, preaching and care for the vulnerable, are critical to be carried out with integrity and excellence in order to glorify God and obey what he's called us to do. You see, the apostles in this, they say that we are called to the ministry of prayer and to preaching. And that's what we need to focus on. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't care for the vulnerable because we just read a little while ago that Peter and John on their way to the temple, they healed a lame beggar. That's caring for the vulnerable. <laughs> so it's not that they didn't interact with that, but their primary calling was to prayer and, and to preaching. And so they, what they're saying is we need to find among us those whose primary calling is to shepherd and to care for those who are vulnerable. You see, no one is called to do everything. And sometimes we struggle with that. But you see, people who do everything in the church are as out of tune with the Holy Spirit as people who do nothing in the church. And I know that some people that just really hit hard. <laughs> God doesn't call any of us to do everything. And if we think we need to do everything, then we're not really hearing his voice clearly because God calls us to do different things and focus on different things based on his gifting in our lives. And so, and so it's interesting. So the apostles say, all right, so we need to find those who are called to care for the vulnerable. 
So he says, find seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, and let them oversee so that the body can function well. And, and here, I, I want to read, there's a reason I want to read these names, but it says, and so what they said in verse five, please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who we're about to look at, and Philip, who we'll look at after Stephen. And then it says, and Procurus and Nicanor, and Timon, I know why they picked Timon instead of Pumbaa, because Pumbaa would have eaten all the food before it got to the widows anyway. But that's a whole different story. And Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Here's what I want you to catch. The problem in the early church was that the Hellenist widows were being overlooked and the Hebrew widows were being cared for. The leadership at that time was all Hebrew Jewish Christians, the apostles. That was their background. That's who they were. And so they looked for people and all of these men who are in this list are Hellenistic Jewish Jesus followers. Isn't that interesting? They did something with wisdom and obedience that began to solve the problem that they were having, and they now brought into leadership people who were a little bit different, and oftentimes there were tension between them and those who maybe were leading. Not, not again, not of malicious intent, but just because that's the way human nature is. In fact, the last guy, Nicholas, it says, was a proselyte of Antioch. He wasn't even ethnically Jewish. He was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, who then followed Jesus. He's like, they're three times removed. <laughs> and, they, and they choose him to help solve the problem that's there. You see, we need to recognize that we are blinded by our own makeup and our own wiring, and we will often not see what we don't see. That's why we need one another in the church. One of the miraculous things about the church of Jesus Christ is that God brings people together who are nothing alike. And they become family. Doesn't mean that there's not tension and that there's not things to overcome because there are, but that's what God does. And so it says in verse seven that, that God basically continued to, to blow up the church in Jerusalem, even to the point that priests from the temple were becoming saved and following Jesus. What an awesome thing. Verse eight, now we move from the, ex, the internal tensions within the church and how to deal with those, how they dealt with that. Now we move to external tensions. And, 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 so, and so here it says in verse eight, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, as he's executing this ministry to the vulnerable, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So these people of the synagogue of the freedmen, this is a... Hellenistic Jewish synagogue in Jerusalem made up of former slaves who came from outside of Jerusalem and had their own synagogue and they followed the Old Testament law. 
Now, of course, they had their own synagogue because, again, we don't want to, we want to keep the denominations separated. So you don't want, you know, the, the Hellenist converts to Judaism to be, you know, with the, with the Hebrew uh, Jews there in the temple. So they had their own synagogue, and they were these people who are identified this way. It says that they were from all over. Those places that it mentions today are, they were from North Africa. They were from Southeast Turkey and Western Turkey. And they all came back to Jerusalem and they followed the law and they followed the the law of Moses. And so it is kind of interesting that, that Stephen is a Hellenistic Jewish Christian and this group of people in the synagogue are Hellenistic Jews. So they're actually a lot alike. They have a lot of similarities, but they got into arguments because Stephen was proclaiming Jesus, and they would argue with him. And those in the synagogue, they couldn't win the arguments. So what do we do when we lose an argument? We certainly don't give up. We escalate. (laughs) We try to discredit the person we're losing to. We sometimes move to violence because if we can just get rid of them, then we can win, then there's no argument because there's no one to argue with. And we've won. And it's interesting because the enemy will always highlight differences between people to promote disunity and dismissal of people. And sometimes there are people who aren't even that different. Remember, I think a couple Sundays ago, we talked about how the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they didn't really depend or believe in the power of God, but they believed in the power of violence. And so instead of recognizing God's power working in their midst, they took the, the apostles and they threw them in prison. And then they beat them because they believed in the power of man rather than the power of God to solve things. And so it's interesting. So so they ratchet up and and, and here's what the text says that, that these people do. It says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who saw sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they discredit him. They say he said things that he didn't say. They weren't listening to what Stephen was saying. They only heard fear and their own insecurity. And then they said, this is what he said. He said he's gonna destroy everything that Moses did. He said that he's gonna take away everything we've worked hard for. See, and so then they went to misrepresent Stephen to the greater group to stir people up so that people would come against Stephen and what he was preaching. Sometimes we are guilty of misrepresenting those we disagree with and we're afraid of. And the reality is they might be wrong. But one of the things that Jesus calls us to is to listen and to hear and to understand so that we can minister and we can care for those who are vulnerable? Do we actually listen to the beliefs of others and allow for an opportunity to explain the hope we have in Jesus with gentleness and respect? It's interesting, it describes 
Stephen being seen as having the face of an angel. What, what this is saying is, is that, that he had composure and innocence that they perceived as they were attacking him. He didn't lose his temper. He didn't respond with the same kind of lies and violence that they were throwing at him, but he had composure and innocence and he responded with generosity and respect. Oftentimes when we respond that way, we can cause more anger by the people who are not listening. (laughs) But they had nothing else to attack him for as he responded this way. Now, before we come down really hard on these people who are part of the synagogue of the freedmen, we need to recognize something because I think it's easy in this passage to say the Hellenist widows were vulnerable. These people in the synagogue need to be dealt with. Here's why we need to be careful. You see, Stephen's message threatened what they clung to. They only heard in what Stephen was saying about Jesus one who would take away their hard-fought freedom to be true to the ancestors of the Jewish faith and, and, and a person who would render unrecognizable the identity to those who are faithful to God, to Yahweh. What they heard Stephen saying was that the stuff that you have your identity and your security in is not quite right. And so he was threatening their people and their faith. What would you do to protect your people and faith from a perceived threat? And I say perceived threat because, you see, it's not a threat actually at all. When we think, what would we do to protect ourselves from others, that's not necessarily thinking that is exposed in Scripture. You see, we are witnesses of a person not defenders of a lifestyle. We're not called to defend our lifestyle. We're called to to, to witness Jesus, tell people in the midst of tension and suffering and difficulty who Jesus is and what he did. Because you see, before we judge these people, we need to recognize that in order for them to move from where they were to where Stephen is, and this has to happen with everyone. It requires a step of faith that can only be taken by yielding to the Holy Spirit. And only through the Spirit can a people imagine the embrace of Jesus to be the embrace of their own deepest and most beautiful desires, that that's actually what they want. That these other things that they have placed their faith in is not going to satisfy or fix what's going on. It's Jesus. So I would argue this morning that those Hellenist widows who were being missed in the daily distribution were vulnerable and needed to be cared for. And I would also argue that these individuals in the synagogue who were attacking and lying about Stephen, they are also vulnerable and in need of care because they need to understand who Jesus is because they are as vulnerable as the widows were just in a different way. Does that make sense? It is so easy for us to dismiss those in the synagogue for those who we identify as vulnerable because those in the synagogue 
are attacking us. But they are attacking from a core place of vulnerability and fear and insecurity. And the call that Jesus gives to us is to be witnesses of Jesus to the widows and also those in the synagogue of the freedmen. That context exists today just as much as it did then. There are those who are vulnerable in our society and we identify them as vulnerable. And the church needs to be caring for those people. The church needs to be a, be a people who care for those who are vulnerable. And the church also needs to be a people who with gentleness and respect, with the face of an angel, with composure and innocence, pursue those who even are anti-God, who are building kingdoms that hate the kingdom of God, we are called to those because they are vulnerable to the fires of hell. And the priesthood is what stands between them and the knowledge of Jesus. And, and, and so what we see is there's these internal and external forces that are trying to distract us from being Jesus' witnesses who make disciples, baptizing and teaching others to obey Jesus. One of the things that we see in the early church that we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna participate in communion this morning. And communion is not just a remembering it's not just a tradition that we have. It is what Jesus said for us to do so that we remember him, his sacrifice, and his mission that he's called us into. And one of the interesting things that they did when they gathered together in the early church, and, and oftentimes these gatherings were anywhere from you know, 20 people to maybe biggest 100 people. They gathered together, and before they did communion, they asked one another if anyone had any unmet needs, if anyone was vulnerable in their midst. Because that's who the church is. And, and so this morning, before we take communion, I want to take a risk. We, we so easily fall into this place of turning our gathering into something that looks like every other thing in the world. And sometimes we come gather together as a church and we come and we sit and we make decisions about whether or not we like the service. We consume what we want that's good and we ignore what we don't like. And then we go back out. And I think that's why oftentimes we don't smell like the smoke uh, when we meet and experience the fire of God. So I know it's awkward. It may be risky. But I wanna ask the question this morning. 
Is there anyone here this morning who's vulnerable and in need? Maybe this morning, you just need somebody to come and pray for you. Maybe you've suffered loss this week and you just need somebody to hear your loss and maybe even just go to lunch with you after church. Maybe you have a financial need this morning. Maybe it's a bill that you don't know how you're gonna pay. Maybe it's a bill that's been hanging over your head because one of your kids broke a leg last year and you're still struggling to pay that off. A few weeks ago, I talked about the idea of family and in a lot of ways, I think God sees his people very different than we see each other. So here's what I'm gonna ask. If you're here this morning and you're in a place of vulnerability and of need, whether it's as simple as you want somebody to pray for you, or you don't know what to do because there's something daunting in front of you. And this takes some humility and boldness in the Holy Spirit, but I want you to stand right now if you are at a place of vulnerability and if you have a need this morning. I wanna ask you to stand right now. It's so hard because in our culture, we are taught not to do this. But God calls us to do this. And it's awkward and it's hard. But this is what God's family is about. And in the early church, they didn't dare go into communion without making sure they were being the body of Christ before they ate the body of Christ. So if you have a need or you're feeling vulnerable this morning, go ahead and stand now. I know a few people are standing, but I just want to give us a little bit of time to do this. If you're standing right now, I want to ask the church, go and surround those people And I want you who are standing, I want you to share what it is that you need this morning. What it is that you need. And those of you who gather around them, pray for them, but how are we gonna meet that need today? How are we gonna meet that need? Maybe they just need someone to have lunch with them. Maybe praying for them is enough. Maybe moving from here is to figure out how to help them with what they don't know how they can pay for. So right now I would ask that those of you prompted by the Spirit go to those who are standing and let them share with you what they need, how they're vulnerable. because this is what the body of Christ does. It's what Jesus calls us to.
This is how God breaks down the walls and the barriers between us. Let's just spend a few minutes praying and listening before we step into communion. those of you ministering right now, keep going. Jesus was with his disciples that night and he was betrayed and arrested and began the final step in our salvation. And with his disciples, Jesus took the bread and passed it around and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's literally going to be broken for you. And he said, when you come together, I want you to break bread and I want you to remember the spirit of what I did and I want you to do likewise. So you can take the bread right now and let's take it together. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's shed for you. That is enough to cover your sins. That is enough to make you clean. When you get together and you take that cup, I want you to remember that you are new creations. That you are forgiven. Because of what I did. And I call you to do the same. Let's take the cup. Church, I believe that God is calling us to be more the church than ever before. And I believe that it'll be awkward and challenging But if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to risk, we're gonna see incredible things because we have an incredible God who goes to an incredible extent for our sake. So I wanna pray for us as we close. And after I pray, the prayer team will be up here or just anyone who wants to come up here and be willing to pray for people. And if you need prayer this morning, then I'd encourage you to come forward. Jesus, I I pray right now that you would help us to be the church that you envisioned, the church that you prayed for, 
God, this morning, for those who, who, who are willing to stand, God, I pray that you would help us as a body, as a family, to help. God, which means more than just alleviating the momentary difficulty or pain, but God, it is walking together to become more like you. God, everything around us is decaying, but you are a God who makes things new. So Father, I pray that you would recalibrate our vision so that we see the vulnerable as anyone who's not been forgiven, who's not been covered by your broken and bleeding body. God, help us to see those who are identifiably vulnerable and those who are vulnerable because of their rejection of you. God, that we would see them as image bearers who we are called to care for and to sacrifice for. We thank you for this and we ask these things in Jesus' name. so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.